can be scary when you think about how much of our so-called personal and confidential information is actually accessible in so many places and by so many different people and organizations. You need to learn what's being done with this information and how to keep yourself secure. Welcome to My Connected Life with Tyler Cohen Wood. When you're in control of your data in cyberspace, you feel all the more secure. Now, here's your host, Tyler Cohen Wood. Welcome to My Connected Life. I'm your host, Tyler Cohen Wood. Everything in our lives is connected to cyber and cybersecurity, whether it's our phones, smartwatches, smart alarms, Alexa, smart vacuum, social media, baby monitoring, cars, and pretty much everything. It affects our health, finances, family, business, and again, everything. And all of these collect data on us and our habits. But how do we really know who owns our personal information, who secures it, how it's shared, and who has control of it, and how can we protect it? So we're going to discuss the good, the bad, and the downright terrifying. And my collected, my connected life, we're going to help you navigate the world of cyber. We're going to offer solutions to your most pressing tech questions. And again, we're here to support you to make decisions and ultimately give you the information that you need to know right now to protect your data dots now and into the future. So tune in live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Um, if you have questions or comments, we'll be taking calls in the last segment. Call in live toll-free 1-866-472-5788 and international 001-480-398-1394. So this is our debut show, and we're going to talk about a bunch of things, my medical journey, how cybersecurity saved my life. We're also going to discuss the convergence of technology and healthcare and the world of biohacking. We're going to talk about what works, what doesn't, what's next, and what we can do about it. And I'm so excited today to introduce our special guest, uh, Nina Ali. She is the co-founder and executive director of the Biohacking Village. And Dr. Toby Gawker, executive vice president at First Health an adjunct faculty, I don't know why I always say facility here, at the University of Maryland. So welcome, um, and let's let's get started. Thanks for having us. Yes, yeah, thanks. thanks for being here. Hi, Toby. Hi, Nina. Hey. Hi. <laughs> so I kind of want to start a little bit with who I am and my story, because it really leads into how healthcare and how cybersecurity really converge. And um, I actually have a very weird story where cybersecurity, my cybersecurity career literally saved my life. <clears throat> and what happened was I've, I've worked my entire life in um, cybersecurity. I worked for the Department of Defense Cybercrime Center doing forensic cases and um, intrusion analysis. Um, I worked for NASA doing incident response and computer forensics. And then I moved to the Defense Intelligence Agency, where what I did was a little different. Um, I was the deputy division chief and senior intelligence officer for the Special Communications Enterprise Office. And I know that's a lot of words um, and a lot of acronyms, but um, basically what special comms is, it's when you're sending information securely, that's secure comms, and it means you can still see encrypted traffic or whatever it is. The traffic is still visible. You just It's harder to read what's there. But special comms is hidden in the noise. The communication is actually hidden in the noise, so it can't very easily be detected. And a lot of these capabilities that our special forces use, they came from my head. And this is important because this ties into my story. Um, do you guys have anything to add yet, Nina, Toby? No, I'm just excited I'm for your narrative. Fascinated and waiting. <laughs> All right. So <clears throat> I've had this long cyber career, and in early 2018, I got sick. 
and it started off as um, a, a GI infection. And um, we think it was a foodborne illness. We don't actually know. But I ended up in the hospital and all of a sudden I, I, I thought, well, you go to the doctor, you go to the hospital, they'll tell you what's wrong and fix you. And that didn't happen in my case. And it started me on this journey of um, trying to get a diagnosis and trying to figure out what was happening to my body. And it was a really difficult process, but I did things along the way to help the doctors to really get to what the problem was. And um, I start, I would go to these doctor appointments and I'm sure Anyone who has had a healthcare issue or has a family member or a child with a healthcare issue, they'll understand the story. Um, you know, you go to the doctor and it's a GI doctor and you ask about other issues that are happening and he sends you to the endocrinologist. She sends you right back to the GI and you're not getting answers and tests after tests after tests. And I was going to these doctor appointments, Nina, Toby, I, I'm not kidding you. I came in with the stack this high of records. This is what it got to and, and test results. And I would give these to the doctors. And at first I assumed that, you know, they were going to go through every single one of them and, you know, consolidate them, put them into some kind of executive summary. But I, quickly learned that, that no human has the time to have uh, multiple patients and delve into hundreds of pages of records. So what I did is <clears throat> I started thinking like, a fr- like my, my health was a forensic case and I needed to take the evidence, the records, the, the data, and put it into a methodology that would be easy for the doctors to really get a quick glance to help them help me. And um, <clears throat> it was just a very simple Excel spreadsheet. And I had I would put ev- every single test result would go in there and it would track things in a chronology. And I set up some macros to alert if something was was wrong if if there was something that was at a dangerous level and i based that on the reference ranges from test results and it was that chart that first that was the first time that my cybersecurity background literally saved my life because that chart alerted that i was having a very serious problem keeping a mineral called phosphorus in my body and i noticed this Um, I had them, you know, they ran another test to verify and it was even lower. And I was really concerned about this. And um, I happened to have, you know, one final doctor appointment within this clinic um, the next day. And it happened to be a nephrologist. And when I showed the doctor the, 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 the test results and he saw the numbers, he got very concerned and he had me run tests again. And um, sure enough, it turned out that I was at a really dangerous level of phosphorus and um, I could feel it. It was it was it's very hard to explain, but it's kind of like if you're diabetic and you don't have insulin or you don't know what your sugar levels are. It's 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 a bizarre thing. But he um, he put me on these phosphorus pills that, that I'm still on and he saved my life. So. You know, that's one way that I was able to really use that cybersecurity career to really help uh, figure out what was going on. And the story didn't end there. Um, it got it got hard because we knew something was wrong and we actually did know part found find out part of the story, at least some of the stuff going on with the GI. But there were other problems too. And I it was like hitting my head against a wall and we weren't getting any answers. And we kept being told, I don't know what this is. You should go to that doctor. And it, it got really hard. And I, I, I hate to say it, but in, in 2019, I had been using a, a concierge service to kind of help with record consolidation, which we'll talk about later in this, in the show. Um, 
And they had a doctor assigned to my case. And she said to me, she said, Tyler, you just have to stop trying to figure out what this is. You're just, you may never find out and you're just going to have to learn to live with it. And I wish that I had said to her, well, would you just live with it? The symptoms are, are horrible. They're horrific. Would you live with this? If it was your child, would you just give up? So I wish I could tell you, Nina, I wish I could tell you, Toby, I wish I could tell all of you out there listening that that was what I needed. And that's when I decided to fight and I was going to figure this out. But I didn't because I was broken and I felt dismissed. I was incredibly sick. I had horrible symptoms that I didn't know what was going on and things just kept getting worse. So I decided to try another route. So I started going to alternative methods. I started doing Tai Chi. I started doing cupping, which um, is an alternative method. They put these cups on um, your body and I guess it takes out poisons, um, but it helped. I did acupuncture. I went to an alternative doctor in Austin who did all kinds of tests and but the test results came back just on like a, a kind of a mimeograph looking piece of paper with, with written results. So <clears throat> I didn't really pay much attention to it, um, but I just kept getting sicker and sicker and sicker. And at the end of 2019, um, a woman from my uh, Tai Chi class said, you've got to go to this GI doctor. She's going to help you. I know it. And I didn't know if I could start going through it again, but I was so sick that I knew I didn't have a choice. So I went to this doctor and it was a very different experience. Um, she said just a few words to me. She said, you know what? I believe you and I'm going to help you. And that was what it actually took to motivate me and get me into gear. So I decided that this woman was going to help me get my diagnosis. And in February, um, I had a, a cardiac event and actually it was during a presentation, which was really bizarre, but, um, and I ended up, uh, you know, with a cardiologist and we still didn't know what was going on and we were getting somewhere, but then COVID happened and I got really concerned because I was scared. And so I decided that I was going to figure out what was going on with me. And you have to understand, I had looked everywhere. I researched every single thing, every test result I researched, every CT scan, every MRI, I researched everything. And, you know, I was, I had come up with nothing. So I decided that I was going to do this differently, that I was going to take another portion of my cybersecurity career. And I was going to treat my case like this was a special comms capability. My body was a special comms capability. And that means that I had that something was hiding in the noise and I had to figure out what that was. And what I did was I decided to change tactics and I kind of trained my, my mind to sort of think like a, uh, like a AI threat hunting model would think to kind of, because it's much more expansive than a lot of other models that are used. And so what I did was I took the statements, I took every CT scan MRI I'd ever had and ignored everything about the, the, stu the, the stomach and the GI tract but looked at the things that had been annotated behind it, like kidney lesion or something along those lines. And one of the alternative tests that was written on a mimeograph piece of paper, one of the numbers was quite high. So I put that in with known condition. And the first thing that popped up was this rare um, connective tissue autoimmune disease. And as I started reading about the disease, all the hairs on my neck stood up because I knew this is what it was. And it was bizarre because it actually explained issues that I had that I never even realized were related. And, um, you know, called the doctor and I said, 
I, I think I have this. And she said, oh, my gosh, I think you do, too. And we tested. And that is indeed what I have. But it was a really, really difficult, difficult road to, to, to get to that diagnosis. And I know with 100% certainty that if I hadn't used my cybersecurity background and looked at these records, looked at my case, like a cybersecurity professional would do, I would probably be either dead or I wouldn't be diagnosed. So it's it's a scary thing. And I know there's a lot of people that, that go through this and they try to get a diagnosis. And, you know, this, this methodology worked. But I want to talk about um, I want to talk about some of the new uh, methods that are being used for healthcare and really new innovations that are going on with healthcare and also go into what is biohacking. So now I'm going to turn to Tina and I'm going to turn to Toby. Hi, Toby. Hi, Tina. Hi. Um, before we start uh, into uh, a little bit on our background, uh, Tyler, I, I wanted to just take a moment and you know, state how perfect an example you are of what all of us need to learn as as healthcare evolves. Okay, you know the the HIPAA laws actually tell us that we are in control and we are the owners of our data, but none of us really feel that way. Okay, you know, and that's from a long tradition in healthcare where the you know the the physicians uh, and nurse practitioners, et cetera, are the experts in the field. They're the ones that order all the tests. They're the ones that go to school for such a long time. And they, they know a lot about the landscape of healthcare. But as you just said, you know, when you come in with a stack of papers, that's you. And the physician doesn't have the time or energy to know you in the level of detail that you know you. So you are the expert on you and we are all the experts on ourselves. And so there has to be a partnership between the, you know, the healthcare delivery organizations and we need to learn to be better advocates uh, for our own healthcare, with, especially with the with all the new technology that's coming up, so that we don't end up kind of like being victimized by it, or you know, taken advantage of, or or overlooked just because things are so busy. And there's a lot of you know cost-effective things that need to be done in healthcare too that that limit a physician's time with you. But but so congratulations on being a success story uh, on that. Um, so thank thank you because I, I I knew that if I didn't do something that I had no chance. Yeah. So I had to. And it shouldn't be like that though. It it shouldn't be where all the 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 burden is on the patient. That's that's true. I I I totally agree with that, but it it kind of a is a you know matter of fact that, that that's the way it is and so so for this aha moment we need to wake up and realize that if we don't advocate for ourselves and if we and if we can't do it as a patient Okay, we need to bring someone along with us to sit in that seat, because oftentimes as a patient, when you're the recipient of this news on your own body, you, you kind of fuzz out and you can't really hear all that well. So it's also good to have additional advocacy on your part uh, in a healthcare setting. That's that's great. Nina, I, I saw you get that look that I know you when you get when you want to say something. <laughs> um, I am a contrarian. So, yes, the HIPAA laws are made um, to make us the owners of our data and such, but the tech and security laws have not kept up with the, the changes that are being made in the industry. So that that does a, that creates a, a very different dynamic of, of how the cool new things are working, but we're supposed to be grabbing data, but they don't know how to grab the data, or we don't know how to grab the data. We also don't know how to secure it properly because nobody's really laying down laws, rules, regulation to say, this is what we have to do. Um, I love talking about data aggregation because we can do it in a population health sort of way. And we can also do it as an individual health sort of way. Um, so when statistically um, women are, are listened to less when they go to their physicians um, and then women. I, 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 experienced, I experienced a lot of that. I, I had a lot. I, and I'm not saying all doctors are bad. There were most doctors wanted to help. They just didn't know how. But there were a few that looked at my husband and said, has she been under a lot of stress lately? Yeah. 
Yes. So that, that be, so there's, there's layers into that. Right. And then, um, and then women of color are listened to even less and their pain scales are not appropriately digested by most physicians. So those are issues. And when we think about how clinical trials are done um, before 1996, they were primarily done on white men. So that's why a lot of medications and pharma goes that way. And then after that, and that was primarily done because women were of the, uh, the birthing age and, and having all the babies and they didn't want to have any issues with um, clinical trials affecting the, the, the children. Um, I am a big advocate for knowing who you are when you come to have a conversation with your physician. Because similarly to you, I had an issue with um, my OBGYN actually, and I came in with very direct proof of things that were going wrong. And initially he was like, no, you're fine. You're going to be great. And um, I wasn't great. And we had to have the, the hard conversation of, you know, these things are happening and we have to have a, this. I had an IUD put in that IUD had to come out. My pain levels were astronomic. Um, and he, like your physician said, is this, is this a pain you can learn to live with? And I said, no. And um, he had to take the IUD out and medicate me for pain. And that was, that was a, a situation where two days earlier, when I told him, I don't want this anymore, we can, you could take this out. Um, my, my situation was negated. My duress was negated and my ask for owning my body was negated and then led to that. So either way around this, um, when it comes to having your own individual health, the laws, rules, and regulations, I always go back to, you need to be happy with your physician and you need to own whatever is going on with yourself. There's too many times where we go to the doctor and we're not completely truthful about what's going on. They'll ask you questions and you're like, no, no, I don't smoke ever. And you go outside and you do the thing. Um, where <laughs> if, if you speak your truth to them, they may tell you to stop smoking, but you can say, that's not an option. I don't want to. We can have that conversation, but I'm not going to. So we need to, you know, figure out what else is going on. Wow. I think there's a lot to be said for uh, a trusted relationship with your physician uh, I know, I know many people, you know, want to go to the, you know, to the best doctors in this and such city or this, uh, you know, best doctors in this profession. But uh, the relationship with you have, as you just were alluding to Nina, is so important, uh, you know, for that truth telling and trust uh, and data sharing that, uh, that I think we need to raise that uh, on everybody's uh, scale. It's not just about a physician's competency. They, they all graduate and are board certified. Okay, so so the degree of separation needs to go to something else, and it's it's about that transfer of data and that relationship, and and being able to have that open and honest conversation is critical. I also have a uh, a kind of a story that's this related, uh, just like uh, both of you, for in terms of advocacy, and uh, you know it's one of the reasons it brings me to this show here. Several several years ago, um, I you know was was working in my house and felt like I was having the, you know, the symptoms of a heart attack, you know, where your, your chest kind of closes in like somebody's, like somebody's sitting on it or something. And then, you know, my uh, left arm had tingling uh, down in the fingers and I break out in a cold sweat. And so I drive myself to the emergency room uh, to my wife's chagrin, of course, uh, I should have called an ambulance. Um, so I get, I get into the emergency room and they take me right away, all those good things. Um, uh, long story short, I didn't end up having a heart attack, even though they uh, they found elevated troponin levels uh, in my blood. They did all kinds of tests, this, that, and the other. Um, but eventually, at the end of the, an overnight stay, um, the there was no troponin left in 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 my bloodstream. So it's like we're scratching our heads. I don't know what happened to you. I don't know what wrong. So so I get put through uh, you know uh, a series of tests, a nuclear stress test, a CT scan all the, uh, you know, all the cats and dogs and all the letters there at the end of the day. And finally, after several hours, they go like, well, we, we can't find anything wrong with you. Um, so I guess you can just go home, um, which is all well and good. So I went home and you decided to go back and, uh, you know, do a, do a Tyler type investigation. I started to read through all the test results. And um, while indeed I, I didn't have anything wrong with my heart, you know, the, the, Data says it's your heart is within normal size limits, no pericardial infusions, et cetera, et cetera. 
Um, in the CT scan, uh, it says, you know, your liver is unremarkable, which I want to complain about. I think I have a pretty good, <laughs> I think I have a pretty good liver. I think I, I think I have an above average liver. I don't, I don't like that unremarkable terminology. I think we need to change that for physicians. So, uh, you know, I take good care of it. I don't drink too much, but anyway, so it goes through and it keeps going down. And then all of a sudden, you know, I get down to the, um, the part where it's looking around my kidneys and it says, um, your left kidney is either atrophic or congenitally absent. So it's like, I have no left kidney. And it's like, why didn't anybody ever tell me this? Uh, (laughs) It's there in writing. No, no physician in the hospital mentioned that to me when I went to my, uh, you know, my primary care physician, uh, you know, she had a copy of the records as well. I was the one who had to advocate. So like, Hey, did you know that I don't have a left kidney? And did you know, by the way, because I, you know, looked it up on uh, either the Mayo Clinic website or MD, uh, WebMD or some other site like that, that one in 500 people only, you know, only have one kidney. And it's like, so it's not that abnormal, but there are things and precautions that you should, you know, take into place, like, you know, lessen your, you know, the amount of ibuprofen or other drugs that, that will go through your system. So it's, it's relevant. It wasn't uh, at the time, but uh, you know, if I hadn't read my own records and advocated for myself, no one would have known uh, about that happening. So, wow. So we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to come back. And again, we'll take callers um, at the in in the last segment. Um, and when if you have any questions, comments, you can call toll free one eight six six four seven two five seven eight eight international zero zero one. Four eight zero three nine eight one three nine four. We look forward to seeing you back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to My Connected Life with Tyler Cohen Wood. To reach the show during the live broadcast, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to Tyler at TylerCohenWood.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to My Connected Life. Um, Again, I'm your host, Tyler Cohen Wood, and I have special guests, Toby Gawker and Nina Ali. And we are talking about digital healthcare. We're talking about um, healthcare stories and 
We're going to now move into questions about privacy over healthcare. Uh, Nina, do you want to? I think I'm going to throw it over at Toby because he has a compelling story that I'm going to. Okay, yeah. Well, I I was, that's uh, right. He has a compelling story I want to hear. That's right. Um, yeah, this is really the kind of like my origin story for why I'm in healthcare uh, cybersecurity field. It, it goes back to the days when I was uh, was the provost for the SANS Technology Institute, and uh, one of our uh, one of our faculty was working on a a project to build something called Cyber City for the Air Force. Okay, and Cyber City was a was kind of like a a logical all the you know, coding and infrastructure of all kinds of uh, all the software that runs a city. You know, the traffic light systems, the the water pumping stations, the missile defense, the train stations, a library. But it also included a hospital in there. And the, the reason we put this package together for the Air Force was because, uh, you know, they realized that someday a nation state might try to attack uh, our country. And so they wanted to be able to practice uh, attacking and defending just, just like the Army would, uh, you know, with, uh, with tanks, et cetera. They wanted in cyberspace to have a place to practice attacking and defending. So, though, when we went to put in the electronic health record system into this cyber city, uh, we started playing around with it. We realized that it was absolutely full of holes. It was like, from a cybersecurity point of view, it was like Swiss cheese. You could almost just walk in the door. There were no defenses built into the software that we used at the time. And so uh, so I went to a very good friend of mine who uh, who runs First Health uh, Advisory, Carter Groom, and I said, like, look, I know you've been in healthcare IT field for 15 years. If you don't start practicing some cybersecurity um, the, your, you, the hospitals that you're working for are going to start suing you for malpractice by putting software in there that's so, so full of holes. I had, I had at SANS worked with, uh, you know, with folks in the finance and the retail industry and knew, for example, that uh, Citibank has a security and networks uh, operations center with 200 professionals uh, here in the United States that run from seven in the morning till seven at night. And then when the sun sets here, they open up a security and network operations center in Singapore that runs the other 12 hours. So that's 400 people watching the Citibank network. So, you know, so that the financial institutions and retail have caught up with that. Um, but healthcare had none of that. And he finally said, Toby, um, I agree with you, but you're going to have to stop what you're doing and join me um, to, to start up a practice for that. And so, so that's, that's really what we did, but, uh, but it just points to the fact that, um, it's not just the electronic health record systems there. Any time that we add a new technology, uh, you know, whether it's, uh, smart watches or handheld devices that are, their nurses are buying, there are vulnerabilities as, as, as you know, Tyler, uh, what we're doing is we're increasing the threat surface. Okay. And as the larger the surface gets, the more, we have to protect and defend, uh, which means more and more people or more and more technologies have to be employed to to uh, to try and uh, defend that that surface. So uh, so that's that's really what's brought me uh, to this field today. That's that's great. So really securing that whole ecosystem, and you know sometimes I think you know this is this is one of the most dangerous things that we have because this has to be secured because this connects to everything. Absolutely. What year did you say your story comes from? Um, it probably goes back to about uh, 2017, 2016. Okay. So I got out of the military and went directly into programming electronic medical records in 20, I started in 2006 and thought this was great. We're on, this is evolutionary. We're leaving paper behind. Awesome. Um, in the words of Hamilton, awesome, wow, and kept it moving, right? And I soon realized the same thing that you did. There's so many holes because there's so many different parts to every different part of the services. I don't, I, I don't know if they're called services for everybody, specialties, right? Um, so every single person is doing something completely and significantly different and everybody has their own workflow. There are no threat models. There are assets that nobody knows where they are in the hospital. They just know that they live in the hospital somewhere. Um, there's shadow IT. Shadow IT is old code that lives in the hospital system and does the thing. And that person may not work there anymore, but 
the program still works accordingly and it, and it mitigates a lot of other factors and humans having to have their hands in it. So they keep the shadow code, shadow IT. Um, I, th- your, your words that the EMR is full of holes and no defense. I have so many issues with how things are, things function this way. Um, the, the devices, they always, well, now, now they have S-bombs around them and they have um, threat models around them, but they are not, they are endpoints, but the ultimate endpoint is that EMR, right? Because everything is in there and everything is transferring information into that higher power. Um, I also- For, for our audience, what, what is an EMR is- Electronic medical electronic record. Medical records. That's where all of your data live. And yes. I also worked in finance and- they had the same paradigm. They had the same example where there was a huge sock um, and and they had all of the people doing all of the things and monitoring the network constantly. And then it turned over into another area of the world so that they could also watch it. But because healthcare is so resource poor, we don't have those opportunities. And each hospital works completely and entirely independently of another. And sometimes that even happens when they're in a system. It, it, it's it's really difficult, and 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 um, there are solutions to these problems, but you know I think a lot of them are kind of out of the box solutions and getting adoption. I really think for is going to a lot of it is going to come from the consumers, from the patients, because they're going to demand it. Yeah, the patients patients have to demand that, and I I would say that there are there are regular attacks in the healthcare system now because um, yes. you know the 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 malicious actors have realized that um, you know compared to other industries uh, healthcare is is less protected, but they're getting very creative in how they decide to attack healthcare because they you know a, a lot of them are really after some economic advantage okay so you you have to find a way to make money off of attacking healthcare and you know just um <clears throat> you know it's it's one thing to try to steal a credit card record from uh, a healthcare facility but uh if you do that you know the finance industry kind of backstops that it's it's other areas where uh you know instances of ransomware or getting into like for example getting into a um there's a there's an instance where uh, you know a technician came in to service a piece of X-ray equipment at a healthcare facility, and uh, you know so he connected it to the internet to download the latest software to keep it up to date to keep it most operational and most functional. But then lunchtime came along, along and so he left the facility, went out to lunch. When he came back an hour later, he realized that someone had downloaded, uh, come in and attacked that piece of equipment right. and downloaded. 2000 chest x-rays and you go like, well, okay, fine. No big deal. Is it? Well, actually, actually it is uh, because those are somebody's records. And you say, well, like, well, why would he do that? Well, it turns out that there's an economic advantage to that, that uh, because if you're living in a, um, a uh, you know, maybe a third world country and you want to visit a first world country, you have to show a negative tuberculosis test, a negative TB test to get into, say, the United States or to get into the UK or France, et cetera. So, uh, and there's lots of variability in that testing. And it turns out that on occasion, there are false positive tests. The only way to prove to the uh, you know, immigration authorities to get your visa to go into the country is you have to show them a clean chest x-ray. Mm-hmm. So what was going on here in the situation I just described wow. is there's an extra 2,000 x-rays that are now available on the dark web uh, was, you could go out. You can go out and purchase them for fifty dollars a piece, uh, and then you know pass that uh, pass that TB test if you need to. So, so the malicious actors are finding creative ways to make money out of healthcare, and as soon as they come up with more of those, the the attacks will just increase until we start to close the doors. I want to go back to something that we had chatted about. It's I don't think it's only about the patients and wanting more. I think the physicians also have to want more. We, we have 20 minutes per patient visit. I think it's 15 to 20 minutes. 15. Um, so establish patients for 15. And then if you're a new patient, it's 20. That's usually the, the thing. Um, we are putting a lot of stress on the physician to type all this information in while the patient is having a conversation. And they did a study of how does the patient want to be talked to and cared for? What does it look like? And 
the the profound amount of patients that said the doctor doesn't even talk to me. They talk to the computer and kind of glance at me when I answer the questions. So when we are working on technology in healthcare, the people we tend to forget about how the things work are having those conversations with the physicians, having the conversations with the patient, right. and then saying, also, this is how tech works, and this is how we can secure it better. So, 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 what is what what positive news do we have? Like, what is? Are there ways that people can protect their data, their their healthcare data, and really kind of take control over over their records? Or, you know, what kind of new innovations are coming along to really help? Um, really change the healthcare industry to make it more patient centric and, and, you know, get better outcomes. I would, I would encourage everyone to, uh, to visit their, um, their healthcare facilities, patient portal and sign up for that. Many, many healthcare delivery organizations now, and, you know, even physician practices have what's called a patient portal. Uh, and there's a little bit of a hassle, you know, to sign up for it and, you know, but but I tell you that there's a just a wealth of information now because uh, you know the the past ten or fifteen years the you know the federal government has helped uh, healthcare by spending a lot of federal dollars uh, through the, what's called the Meaningful Use Act to help them put uh, you know all of our records into electronic format so that they're visible rather than paper and a lot of those are appearing in these patient portals but you have to sign up for those patient portals and then. Once you've got that, you've got the information and you can become an advocate for your data. Uh, make sure though, when you, when you log into those patient portals that you, that you embrace the idea of what's called multi-factor authentication, okay, on those, on those sites. And lots of people are gonna think it's a hassle. Oh, I've gotta have some alternate way to identify myself. What a pain in the butt this is, but that's for your own protection. Okay, so make sure you, make sure you adopt and don't, don't, uh, don't opt out of multi-factor authentication for yourself. Thank you so much for saying that because multi-factor authentication is huge. It's absolutely huge. And if you have the ability to use it, you want to use it. On everything. On everything. Right. And, 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 and multi-factor authentication is having uh, multiple forms of identity. Like for example, you type in a password, you get a text message to your phone. Um, that's multi, that's two-factor authentication. If you have multi-factor authentication, there's three or more methods to identify yourself, like maybe a fingerprint, a password, and a text sent to your phone. And you have to type in the code. Yeah, they're usually uh, classified in three categories, either something you know, uh, something you have in your possession or something that you are. Okay. And, and like you were saying, uh, Tyler, you know, it can be, it can be your fingerprint. That's something you are, but also it can be, uh, you know, as we go forward in the future, it will be your heartbeat, which is unique signature to you. It'll be the gate in your walk. Those are things that you are that are, that are coming out that are being more advanced, but lots of times the, the most basic thing that we have in our possession is our, is our cell phone. And that's, that's usually the have, and the, what we know is typically uh, a password or a PIN. <clears throat> That's, th th yeah, thank you for that. It's true. It's very important. And I see Nina, Nina's dying to say something. So please. Uh, so, <laughs> I think, I don't think. So the pandemic has brought us all to this place, right? We knew that there were issues in healthcare before this all started, before the pandemic started. And now it's more pronounced. And now people are paying more attention and we're figuring out that, healthcare does not work in a silo, that it's interconnected, it's got microsectors, we're looking at how things affect each other. And then, so, so that's one, to me, it's promising. The other part of the promise is that we are able to do long-term clinical trials, where before, if you were part of a clinical trial, you had to go into the hospital, get your blood drawn, have the doctor come visit with you, et cetera. And now the pandemic has given us this utility where we can do things at home, where we can wear, do have a wearable, it's on our phone, whatever that looks like. And there's so much more data that people are able to collect. So now we can have better outcomes for whatever those um, that long-term trial looks like. Tyler, another uh, positive outcome, uh, and I guess it's an, it's an artifact certainly of, uh, of the uh, pandemic, is, is that the, 
the tremendous increase that we've seen in you know being able to have telehealth visits. Almost every facility that I know of pivoted at an unbelievable pace to allow telehealth. And and I think before uh, you know you have uh, old school uh, uh, healthcare workers feel like they have to actually lay hands on a person in order to make a diagnosis. But but nowadays uh, you know it was it was necessity is the mother of invention, as we often say, there was no choice. We, we forced people to go outside of their comfort zone or their, their old school ways of having to actually lay hands on individuals to make proper diagnosis. And, uh, you know, I, I, I myself had, you know, I dropped something on my toe during COVID and, you know, it's swollen up and it's like, I'm, I've lost a toenail. It looks infected. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I was, I was able to I was able to schedule uh, through the other app that I have on my phone now uh, a telehealth visit. I took a picture of the affected area and sent it ahead of the visit. And so while I'm having the conversation, and it wasn't even with my primary care physician, I had a I had a list of six doctors that were ready, standing by uh, telehealth, and they had their you know the online rating rooms. Uh, so they're mimicking uh, you know face to face practice. Uh, we got online. She had the picture. Uh, we had the conversation, and all is all is well. So there's, that's a that's a real positive uh, change that's happened in the last couple of years. I love that. I love telehealth I too because it's also that now people can see how people are living and help make better decisions. So if there's as an example, right, diabetes, they can ask the patient, "Can I see inside your refrigerator?" And if there's things that maybe they shouldn't be eating, they can have a better conversation of, I see that you have rice in there. Maybe that's not a good choice. Um, Is there something else that we can talk about through this? And I am all for telehealth. The problem with telehealth, and I feel like the future of telehealth is that CMS has not changed, Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services has not changed the pricing on it. So current state, the physical visit is still about $40, where the telehealth visit is about $31. So doctors are still going to opt in for a hands-on visit in the future, which then creates a new, the, we're, we're returning instead of continuing forward where I feel like I need to see the doctor and I want to have a hands-on visit. That should be my decision at this point. Right. What, what do you guys think about um, alternative uh, methods to um, like a global healthcare system where you're utilizing inputs that give information. Like for example, um, I used to ride horses. Well, I would talk about that on social media. And if that OSINT, open source intelligence, that information was being pulled into something, you know, that could have been a, a very good indication that I had Lyme's disease. I don't, but the fact that I rode horses in Northern Virginia, you know, it could have been an indicator. And that's not something that I probably would have told a a physician. Um, You know, we also, I I think I'm going to need to have you guys back on on another show. So, you know, we can talk about more um, about the biohacking and also, you know, some more of the the privacy concerns and also some of the more, you know, innovations that that we're really seeing in this, in this sector, because, Mm -hmm. I do have hope. I really do. And and I think you guys really hit it on the nail that, you know, COVID really did force a lot of innovation in the healthcare sector. And, you know, I really do believe that um, there is there is a lot of hope in the future, but I do think it'll be global collaboration um, and really changing the paradigm as as it is now. You know, one other place, Tyler, that I think COVID helped us, you know, and it's, it's maybe not telehealth, but it's remote health. Uh, and it's, it comes in place in particular with uh, rural healthcare facilities, okay, where, where you, you know, you have, uh, you know, someone who's in the emergency room and you may or may not have someone on staff on the late night shift to read x-rays when someone comes in with an emergency. But because of telehealth or what's now remote health, we can now share 24/7 coverage for people to be able to read X-rays and other, uh, you know, electronic results, and and it'll even have to be in the United States. You can contract with a physician in the Philippines to to be on call to read X-rays for you, uh, you know, late at night, and that way it it'll help uh, lower the cost of healthcare in a in a rural facility because they don't have to have somebody uh, on staff or on call for those kinds of of, of 
of care facility, uh, situations. You know where else that helps? The robotic surgical suites. If somebody has a, a situation where they need surgery and the, the person, the best person in the world is in Manhattan, but then the, the, the patient is in another country, they can do a remote session with the robotic surgery surgical system and make that patient better. I love that. I love that dynamic so much. Yeah, because it kind of breaks the physical barriers, which means, you know, you could have physicians in, um, you could have a whole team around you of global healthcare professionals. And instead, you have doctors from different specialties, you have an endocrinologist in California, you've got a different endocrinologist in uh, Sweden and a um, cardiologist in Japan and so on, all working together around that patient and having a secure crowd because crowds really do help patients and they pay other patients, help other patients, but also doctors learn a lot from these crowds too. And we'll discuss that on the next episode because, um, I know we've got a lot to say on the privacy of some of the social media disease groups, mm-hmm. which is where a lot of people get, get their information, which is great. These groups are needed, but they, they really do have to be very private and secure. And, uh, and I also would say moderated uh, to some extent. There, there needs to be a guide on the side. You don't need a leader uh, you know, to stand in front of that. You don't need a physician to lead that, but you need to uh, someone to come in and make sure that the that the uh, conversations stay stay in boundaries that are productive. Uh, to, yeah. So, so guided conversations. Guided conversations, and also you know looking outside of the healthcare sphere um, into things like cybersecurity. Take cybersecurity threat hunting models, a, a, the models, implant them in and change them into cybersecurity models because they're much more expansive in what they do. We can also utilize those areas to have cybersecurity conversations, even if it's just use a multi-factor and guiding them through. Another tip that I'll give uh, give folks for, uh, since we're increasing telehealth and people are using their own home computers, is that uh, I want to make sure that everybody knows that typically when you get your home computer, you're you're running as the administrator on your home computer. You you want to learn to run a uh, a local account. Um, instead of the administrative account, so that uh, yes. as you increase that connectivity, you um, you lessen the ability for people to uh, to hone in on that conversation or, or attack the conversation for you. So, so learn how to run with uh, non-administrative control of your PC. Thank you guys so much. I want to have you back on another show because there's so much more to talk about. Um, thank you for joining us. I really want to thank you, Nina and Toby. I also want to thank our engineer, Matt, Jeff, Ryan, Randall, and really the whole Voice America family. Um, next week, join us. We're going to have special expert guests as we take a journey to the red light district of the internet. We've all heard about the dark web, but what is it? How do we protect our data and keep it off the dark web? What do we need to know now? Tune in live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. And um, I really look forward to seeing you guys next week. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in this week to My Connected Life. We have much more for you next Wednesday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until our next show, be careful with your data and your life.